In all my 20 years of working with fashion brands, creative agencies, retail stores, and working on some of the most prominent collaborations of all time, you know what the most stressful thing I've ever done is? Trying to start a podcast. No, seriously, trying to get a podcast off the ground is like advanced mathematics. It's a tangled web of codes, confusing links, and algorithms. That is until the day I discovered Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. A, it is free. B, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your smartphone or computer. C, Anchor will take care of distributing your podcast for you so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else people listen to shows. And last but not least, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Thank you, Anchor. No, really, thank you. Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. When I have those moments where I could sit back and look at it, it really feels like a blessing. Like, I don't think I would do anything else. But it is still, it is still surreal. I still haven't slowed down to the point where I can like sit back and really think about it that way. I still have so much more that I want to do and I still don't feel like I've gotten anywhere close to where I want to get to. I still have those doubts in a sense where I'm like, okay, this is cool, but we're still, we still got work to do. Yeah. You're 10 years in on, on day one, basically. Yeah, exactly. From Hypebeast Radio, I'm Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. On this episode, we have Melody Asani, a jewelry, fashion, and footwear designer that for the past 10 years has managed to carve out her own way in this male-dominated streetwear scene. I don't believe that we're just this. Like, we're not just physical. I, I definitely think that we we have some kind of spirit that animates us. And I think that there's more to us than just this. And I think learning how to meditate and communicating with myself in that way sort of opened me up to that. Because it really, when I meditate, it feels like I'm going in and I'm asking myself questions. And then myself, like a different self is answering Wow. You know, if that makes sense. Not to no. me, but it can to you. It's fine. Yeah. I get it, though. Yeah, I just feel that way. Melody, like a lot of young people that I talked to, didn't have any formal training in art or design. So I wanted to find out how she got her start. So when I started, I was so, cons- I was so like just enamored with making things and learning how to make things because even from a design or a creative standpoint it's the way that my mind worked like I had the ideas and I I knew what they looked like and I that kind of stuff came very easy to me but technically speaking I had no skills so I didn't know how to draw I didn't know any of that stuff and and to me all that stuff is technical it's not creative like Some people love sketching and drawing, like I don't like it. So I learned how to use Illustrator, like, and so I was so enamored and like occupied with the, how I was gonna be able to put these ideas down Mm -hmm. and 
then communicate them to somebody that could make them for me. Right. That I wasn't really even thinking about the business aspect of it. So oftentimes it was like I'd make it and then I'd be like, I made it. Mm. And then I'd be like, oh shit, what do I do with all this stuff now? Like you were so impressed that you got it made. <laughs> yes, right. exactly. What I realized really quickly was that women really know how to spread word about something they love faster than the internet, like around the world. So if it's like, if this new lip gloss is like the lip gloss, like I tell my friends, she tells 10 friends, tomorrow everybody and their moms has this lip gloss. Yeah. Like, and so it was the same with me. Like I started making shoes and I posted the shoes on MySpace at the time. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, it just kind of became a thing. So mm-hmm. I had them in my kitchen and like my little studio apartment and people would just come to my apartment and buy them. And I knew like every month I needed to sell like 20 pairs to make ends meet. And so that was my goal. Uh I was like, if I sell these 20 pairs and I'm good. And then I knew like, okay, if I sell a hundred of them, that means I've broken even on my investment. And then if I sell anything I sell past this is like profit. So it was very like basic. Like I I only knew how to calculate and do the basic and that's all I cared about because I was so excited about doing it that I just needed to figure out how to keep doing it. Gotcha. And shoes was the first thing, was the first product that you had your name on. Yes. So making shoes is not making a t-shirt. How did you go about not being a shoemaker to making your own shoe? So I took a class at Art Center in Pasadena about shoemaking and I became obsessed with it. And growing up, I was like a sneaker head, for lack of a better word. So I I really hate saying that. But it was my transition stage where I was just coming out of sneakers and I was really into being a girl. Like I wanted to wear heels, but I wanted them to be comfortable and all that stuff. So I... Um, I did an internship, my friend Mikael at the time, he got me an internship with Creative Recreation and they had just started their brand. It was like maybe three months old and they had nobody, they had no employees. It was just the two partners. And so I would drive there every day, which was like an hour away and Rich, the owner, taught me how to use Illustrator and I would learn about like what I could just from being there. And then after I was done with that, I dis- I knew the city in which a lot of this stuff happened in China. Like um, there was this city, Guangzhou, that I had researched. And I was like, there's a bunch of factories there. I hit up a friend of mine. I was like, yo, do you know anybody in Guangzhou? She lived in Hong Kong. And she was like, actually, I do. I know this family that lives there. I was like, cool, do you think they'll like host me if I came down? Wait, you just wanted to pick up out of LA and move to Guangzhou? Well, I didn't want to, but it was like, it, w- it was kind of like I was at, at rock bottom. You know, like I had dropped, o- I had dropped out of school. I had a small savings from working since I was like 15. And that savings wasn't going to last me very long. So it was like, I either had to like, I had to do something there's nothing else for me to do. It seemed like the only choice, like I have to do this now, I have to make this happen now. So I did, I moved to Guangzhou and this family hosted me, they were incredible. They hosted me for like five months and I went out there, they helped like translate and they did everything and I came back with my first collection. That is seriously some balls, excuse my French. Like, you don't speak Chinese, I assume. No. 
No, I didn't know anything. But you know, it was... When you went there, did you already know the factory? No. So you went there just nothing, like, I'm just going to figure this out. Yeah. Wow. But you came back with a shoe collection. I came back with a six-piece collection. And was it sneaker-driven or shoes-driven? No, it was heel. Wow. Yeah. And you were selling them out of your home? Yeah. When I started out, I had no investors and maxed out eight different credit cards. By any means necessary is the name of this game. Melody explains what she needed to do to get by. Okay, so and I, I love you said this before a little bit, but you mentioned your baseline metric for avoiding starvation, mm-hmm. right? Like 20 a month yeah. and I can live. Yeah. <laughs> and you were hitting that? Yeah. What year is this? This was 2008. Okay. Is that what you credit as the start of the brand? Yeah. Like, how are you spreading the word to get people to come to your home to buy a shoe? Word of mouth. Okay. That's what was incredible about it. It was like women. I was like, we, this is what we do. Like, we do this. We talk about stuff. Guys don't really, they're, they don't have that same sort of network. You know, anybody that would try to talk to me about putting together a business plan, they're like, well, how much do you have for marketing? And I'm like, I don't have anything for marketing. I don't need marketing. I just need to like connect with my girls, talk, talk about it, like show them what I'm doing and then it'll do its own thing. And that's exactly what happened and still happens like to this day. Give me an idea of what that initial production run was. What was that first order? What do you mean? Like, like how, how many, many pairs of... Oh, it was a lot. <laughs> it was, um, I think I convinced the factory to do 12 dozen of each style. So I had 144 pieces and I had six styles. So it was almost a thousand pairs and they were all in my apartment. I love it. You had a thousand pairs of shoes in your yes. apartment that you were moving individually one at a time to women. Yes. Did you have, did you open wholesale accounts? Like did a store come and buy your stuff? Um, I tried to, but it was really hard. So yeah, because the thing is, because I was selling it out of my house, there'd be like, no size eights of this style left, you know? And it, was, it wasn't like I was gonna not sell them to people to sell them to a store. So it was kind of, it wasn't really set up for that. So I couldn't really fulfill store orders right. in that way. At this point, I wanna go back to your family a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. is your mom now proud of you for what you've done? Yeah, absolutely. She totally had a, well, I did it, it it's, relative right like I still don't think that they really see me in the sense but they're very proud of me so for the first like four years that I was doing it it you know she would still bring me like job clippings and be like she had gone to the stage where she'd bring me like designer job right postings versus, you know and be like look so and so hiring because uh-huh. they just didn't understand how I would be able to do it yeah by myself. And then after I bought my house, I think that was like a big turning point because they're like, wait, what? Like, what did you do? And I was like, yeah, yeah I bought a house. Okay. So let's, let's go. How did that happen? Like, so you're, you do this thousand pair run. We're able to move all of that product. Yeah. I moved it all. And then after I did that, I was like, well, what do I do now? Do I have to go back to China now and do this all over again? And how many times a year am I going to have to do this and how, you know, Mm -hmm. so I, um, I got bored and I started making jewelry at home because there was such a big gap between Mm -hmm. everything. Waiting for shoes to get made and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
And at the time, I had just become friends with Saul Williams. He's a poet. And Saul was doing his first um, music project with Trent Reznor, which was a big deal. And so I was out with him one night, and I had had this dream about him. And I told him the dream. And then he just, like, stared at me. He's like, he was like, I want you to design my wardrobe and all my stuff because what he's like, your dream is exactly what I've been working on. Like, and so he showed me his vision board and it was literally like this whole thing that I had dreamed of. So he had created this character called Niggy Tardust. And, um, and so that was the first time I, I decided to like, make all the stuff that I grew up not being able to afford into like affordable jewelry pieces. So I would make like three finger rings out of plexiglass and, you know, like oversized hoops. And I would like um, crystal bamboo earrings by hand and just all this stuff. And, and so he, I made it for his character. And then um, Erica Badu is a good friend of his and saw his rings and, and, wanted them so she reached out to me and I was like what you want what and um and then from there it just like catapulted like I met her in New York and then I I had designed like maybe like 10 pieces just for her and I had brought them for her and then um the shoot that I brought them to I had no idea where I was meeting her where I was going um was the shoot like it was like the main press shoot that she was doing for her new album and then it was like blah 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 covers of like these five magazines and all this stuff and she wore my stuff in each image and it ended up being her album cover where it's like the whole cover is her holding up my rings and then she adopted the font that I had created and all this stuff for her packaging wow so that was like... Which album was that? Uh, New America. Okay. Yeah. So she's just prominently rocking it. Yeah. And she was really supportive. Like, I, I think uh, she does that with artists that she really likes. Mm-hmm. She just sort of like looks out. She was really dope in that way. And then after that happened, everybody wanted a custom like three finger ring. Some of the pieces that I made exclusively for her, I started to turn into like collection pieces because mm-hmm. so many people were requesting them and then were you making one-offs for people at the time yeah and how were you like you weren't making these in china were you no so how were you making these i was children? making so when i was at art center mm-hmm. i fell in love with the laser cutting machine mm-hmm. like i was like this is amazing yeah. like what does this do <laughs> right and um so the main thing that i wanted to make out of it was jewelry mm-hmm. Because there's so many things that I wanted, but that I couldn't find in the market. And so I became fascinated with taking, like cutting and drawing something two-dimensionally and then making it three-dimensional. So like with the rings, it's essentially like three or four two-dimensional objects that you like glue or assemble together in a way so that it becomes a ring. Mm Um, And with earrings, it's the same thing. It's like, it just depends on how you cut them and then how you assemble them. And then it becomes this like 3D looking thing. Mm. And so the concept of that was feeding me creatively. Laser cutting machines sort of informs the material too, right? Yeah. Were you using any like precious metals back then? No. But you could, because you couldn't put that in a machine. But like Plexi, you could. Yeah. But that made it unique at the same time. Totally. That's cool. And I, I started to like source really cool plexi. So mm-hmm. I would find like mirrored gold, which looked like 
gold, yeah. you know, but it didn't fade and it was cheap. Mm -hmm. and, and then because it was affordable, it was so fun because I couldn't, I could do whatever I wanted and I could make as many mistakes as I wanted and yeah. it didn't matter. Right. You know, whereas if you're making like a ring out of gold, it's like you basically have this one, <laughs> one shot. One time, get it right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now you have, uh, talk about the line now. So you, you're making customs for people. Yeah. You're turning some of the successful ones into your line, mm -hmm. essentially, and you still have the shoes. Yeah. Okay. So this is like the breadth of your collection, basically? Yeah. Okay. So I'm doing all of this, and then I, I think I... I did that for two, a good two years, and then two years in, um, customs confiscated my entire shipment of shoes. A whole shoe run. A whole shoe run. Every entrepreneur is going to face a moment of failure. A moment when you ask yourself if it's time to throw in the towel. The good entrepreneurs, they're able to climb out of that hole and persevere. One collection would support me for a year. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and again, that's all I knew. Like, I didn't know the business of anything other than, like, how do I survive and what does this mean? So I, um, yeah, they confiscated the entire shipment. And the way... Talk about, break that down to someone who doesn't quite understand what customs confiscated means. Because that oh, sounds right. like some cocaine shit. It is like, some cocaine <laughs> shit. But what does that mean? Like, what is customs and why would they confiscate your stuff? So because I was making stuff in China, there's, like millions of packages that come here from China and they I believe that they have a quota where they have to go through them and make sure that everything's legit and there's very harsh like criteria around what you can bring in what you can't bring in how you bring it in how it's packaged just because it's also China and I'm sure a lot of people are bringing in counterfeit goods and all kinds of different types of things so um, they confiscated my stuff because they said that, that that my factory didn't use authentic YKK zippers. So that was the thing. And, um, but so, you were using YKK branded zippers, but yes. it might not have been real YKK. Well, yeah, that's what they claimed. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I contacted my factory. I got like a authenticate, like an authenticated letter from YKK saying that they were, and they, um, customs wouldn't accept it. Mm -hmm. So I don't remember the exact details of it, but the way that it was, it was sort of like a setup because it was like I, have to, I had to put a $15,000 bond down just to contest them, mm -hmm. like, taking my stuff. And then after that... If you win. If I win, yeah. yeah, it's like one thing. And if I lose, like I have to pay all the legal fees for mm -hmm. c the customs department. It was just something that was like... Like whack judicial system. It was stuff. so whack. Yeah. And I couldn't afford it. Uh -huh. And I thought that it was really unethical. Anyway, so it, w it caused me a lot of stress. I if I hadn't started making the jewelry, I would have had to stop doing what I was doing right. because that's how much of a hit I took. So after that, I was like, fuck China. I'm never making anything in China again. 
Um, and I don't want to deal with customs. Like I'm not doing anything with customs mm -hmm. again. I'm just going to make this stuff here. Yeah. I mean, and it was, must've been a harrowing experience. Yeah. Like, you don't want to ship anything. Anything. Ever again. I was like, <laughs> You're like laser cutter machine. Here <laughs> yeah. I come. I'm just going to laser cut everything. Everything. <laughs> like, can I laser cut these shoes? <laughs> which you can. Now. Yeah. Which you can now. Yeah. yeah you're 20 years ahead of your time. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, so I just focused on the jewelry. I okay. was like, okay. Now that this has happened, I really have to grow the jewelry. So then I started making more and more. I maybe had like a 30-piece mm -hmm. jewelry collection, which for me was a lot. And then it did really well. It just started growing and growing and growing. And then a year later, um, by the grace of God, uh, Reebok contacted me and was like, there was somebody there on their team that was like a fan of my jewelry and... Um, wanted me to do a shoe for them. Was that based off of your shoes or your jewelry? Jewelry. Okay, so they didn't, they weren't a fan of your They didn't know heels. about this. <laughs> yeah, they didn't even know about them. But yeah. this goes back to your sneakerhead basketball roots. Yeah, so it was kind of incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I couldn't have set it up in a better way. What year was this when Reebok hit you up? This was 2012, okay. yeah. Um, a lot of young people ask me, because you know I work in shoes a lot too, how, does a company like Reebok just hit you up? Like, yeah. Can you, how did it, was it an email? Um, yeah, call? I got an email uh -huh. and then they were like, can we set up a call? And I was like, sure. <laughs> but it happened with like, a, like when, when Erica Badu called me, I didn't think it was really her. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, who? Yeah. I was like, yeah, right. Her people called or she no, called? No, she called. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's cool. Bye. And then You're like, wait, sing on and on so yeah. I know it's really you. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been dope. I actually should have done that. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of times, like, there's these moments, right, where, like, Reebok emailed you. There's that moment. Erica yeah. calls you. But people don't realize what's under that. Like, how did that happen? And they just... I think a lot of people think like, oh, you're just lucky and so they just called you. But like, there's yeah. a wealth of pushing that occurred in order for that to happen. Like it was your, you know, maybe you working with Saul and your dedication to, to his vision mm -hmm. that got Erica, right? Mm -hmm. And it was your pushing of the jewelry that made a fan at Reebok that finally they hit you up. Yeah. Yeah. But you didn't, you didn't do it with the intention of that happening. No. Right. Like you weren't trying to get beyond. a shoe collab out of no. jewelry line. I mean, even when Erica hit me up, when I was doing stuff for Saul, you know, like I never imagined celebrities wearing my stuff. That was so far from my mind. I was trying to figure out how I could sell it to people. Yeah. But I never thought that like somebody famous would wear it mm -hmm. because I'm like, I'm making shit out of plastic. Yeah. Like, it's not like it's, you know, and I always thought celebrities is like, oh, they're going to Tiffany's or, right. you know, like whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but then when that started happening, I was like, how the fuck? Like, so-and-so's on the red carpet wearing like a $10,000 outfit with my like $30 rings, you that's know? So dope, yeah. It's and, the and that's the highlight of their outfit. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's what people are talking about. Right. And it was just like that m moment that was sort of like everybody around me was like, how did you do that? You're mm -hmm. so lucky. And I'm like, it's not quite luck. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. I worked really hard. What percentage is hard work versus what percentage is luck? 
You know, I don't like the word luck because I think luck means that like it's a happenstance, whereas I, I really do believe that there's some kind of divine intervention. I think that when you really pursue something that's within your calling or it's part of like a divine blueprint that you have, I think that you receive support for that, you know, by whoever, whatever you want to call it, the universe or however, whatever your paradigm is. But mm -hmm. I couldn't. I mean, literally, like, my dreams started playing out, but it was so much better than I could have planned, mm -hmm. you know? So it was like, it's all the things that I knew I was and I knew I could do, but I had no clue how and I didn't have the vision for it because I didn't have any reference point for it. You know, like, nobody had ever shown me. I never had seen anybody else do it. Like, I just didn't know what happens or how it happens. Mm -hmm. And so I just worked hard and then I did what I could. And then I think just by virtue of me doing the best that I can, then, then these other things started to open up. I think what I'm trying to say is that it's not a formula, you know, like there's no, um, there's no prescription for it. Like mm -hmm. when you just do things that you know and that naturally come to you and that you're good at, there's something else I think that steps in yeah. and helps. Yeah. But was there a lot of struggle while you were doing that? Yeah. It's not like... Absolutely. It's not like Melody said, there's someone listening right now that says yeah. like, Melody says, believe in yourself, do you, mm -hmm. do what you love, and then the White House will call you, Erica Badu calls you, and Reebok calls you. Yeah. There's like a lot of... Totally. Just well, heartache, headache, right? Absolutely. I remember actually this last year looking back and being like, where did the last 10 years of my life go? 10 years. 10 a years. Decade. A yeah. decade yeah. of my life mm -hmm. I've been doing this. Yeah. And I've really dedicated myself to it. I'm not married. I'm not, you know, and it's like... Mom, I'm not married. Right. <laughs> and it's not that I don't want to be. I actually want partnership, mm. you know, but it's like I've been so... I've been working so much, you mm -hmm. know, like I've really been working hard at it. So it does definitely take a lot of work, but more than anything for me, I think it's taken a lot of self work because, and it's sort of what I've noticed is the difference between myself and other people that want to do things, but that don't is that we're so good at talking ourselves out of it. And we're so good at being scared and then not doing it. Right. Self-doubt. Exactly. And the thing is, is like, I'm just as scared, if not more, but I've pushed past those things. You know, like anytime I'm like fear for my life about anything, I just do it anyway. Mm. I think that's the only difference between saying all these inspirational things and making them happen versus making them not is that you really have to conquer yourself. Yeah. You know? And it's tough as a creative because to me, like... Let's say you're an accountant or you're a lawyer and you want to do the best you can. You can justify it sort of numerically. You could be yeah. like, I'm a great accountant because I did this many bookings and I'm this good at my job of balance and taxes. But to say you're a good creative and a successful creative is very subjective. Totally. And no one's telling you like, yeah, what you just did for the last five years, check, check, check is all great. Like, totally. It's every single thing you create is like, this could be the worst thing ever. Ever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's no, there's no valid like right or wrong. Yeah. Right? 
and even something that you think is right could be received like really poorly. I, I often find in my stuff, the stuff that I'm most proud of performs same. the worst and same. the stuff that I'm just like, whatever, yeah, it like kicks like ass. Yeah, same. <laughs> Why is that? Why does that I happen? I don't know. I always think I'm like, are people behind? Like, because yeah. I think that's what it is. I think that, you know, part of your job is to forecast mm-hmm. and you probably pick up on trends intuitively or however yeah. we do. and. You put them out and you're like, ta-da, like, look, I brought it to you. And people are like, what? We're still on that. (laughs) Yeah, two-year-ago thing. That two-year-ago thing, yeah. So the Reebok collaboration started as, what, a shoe or you were an ambassador first? Yeah, it was like an influencer program. So they chose, like, a girl from each continent and they gave us all the same shoe and we basically had to do whatever we wanted with the shoe. Mm -hmm. So I did the shoe and the shoe did like freakishly well so back then on my website we did, i didn't have like a counter because we were making all acrylic like we were making all the jewelry in-house so we had no inventory it was like we'd make a few of these things that we thought were popular and then we'd like if somebody placed an order we just make it that same day you know it was kind of like that so we got the rebox and we had i think rebox had Gift, like seated me 50 pairs or something like that. So we put them up on the website on Friday night or whatever. Mm. It was like Friday at midnight. And then we came back to work on Monday and we had sold like 3,000 pairs of shoes <laughs> over the weekend. <laughs> Out of 50. <laughs> Out of 50. And we had no counter, so there was no it. way to stop it. So orders were like just continuing to come in. And so I was like, oh my God. You just pissed off 2,950 yeah. people. <laughs> so I was like, what do we do? How do we do this? Like, where did these people come from? And um, so I called Reebok and I told them, I was like, um, do you guys have 3,000 pairs of shoes that I could buy off of you? And what, you know, what can we do? And they're like, well, we have 2,000 pairs, but you can, we can order we could like order them from, I don't know, wherever Mm -hmm. and get the rest to you in a month. Mm -hmm. And I was like, cool. So we, I bought the 2000 pairs off of them and then I shipped it out. And then everybody else, I think we got like five cancellations or something. Everybody else waited a month and a half for their shoes. Wow. What a great story. Yeah. And that led to more. Yeah. So after that happened, I mean, I hate to talk shit, but you know how like companies are like, oh, that happened, so let's just like kill this thing now. Like yeah, let's take it. Right yeah. <laughs> so they were like, we want to do the same shoe and like these colors now. And are you okay with a re-release? And I was like, no, like no, it's not going to be special anymore. But they did it anyway, and the second run did really well as well. Well, you eventually said yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I didn't really have a say. Like they had under my contract, they had rights to it. Okay. So you just des- so in your contract, whatever you designed for them was the ownership of was Reebok. theirs. Yeah. yeah. So they were asking you for permission, but technically didn't. They need didn't it. need it. Okay. Yeah. But was your name on those shoes? Too? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So they put it out. It was fine. Yeah. And then it, again, it did really well. And then I think it just sort of like it was um, the perfect timing because. The all the people in the classics department that were making the decisions were all women, and they had been waiting for something like this to happen. It mm-hmm. seemed so that they could like 
do something for women. And especially with Reebok's brand heritage, like it's all about aerobics and mm -hmm. like that's really where they killed it. Yeah. Back then, yeah. So I think that they saw it as an opportunity. So they signed me to a deal mm -hmm. and then a longer term deal than that. Yes. To create more collections. They signed me to a three year okay. deal, which at the time, you know, I was like, great, like, cool. I could do two collections a year for you guys and mm -hmm. do whatever I want. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So it was great. Did that help from a, like, financing of your brand? Yeah. Okay. Well, in the sense of that I, um, I learned, thankfully, from that first experience that I had, I learned that I needed to buy the shoes and sell them myself. So I that was part of our contract is that I had them set me up as a vendor in their account. Mm -hmm. So it was like I was getting their like little design fee on the side. You know, like that's what I, that's what my deal was with them. But then I had access to purchasing the shoes and um, I was able to drop them a week before mm -hmm. anybody else. Mm -hmm. So that was like my deal with them and that's how I made money. And okay. That really like helped me financially. Did you have a lawyer at the time? No. So you, you know, I want to drill down a little bit into the art of the deal. Yeah. And, you know, the first the negotiation of the terms and, you know, for people who don't really understand, there's first, before you sign a contract, there's just a discussion of like mm -hmm. the bullet points of the deal, right? Like yeah. who gets what, how much are they going to pay, stuff like that. And then it goes into like a contractual thing. In that negotiation process, that was just you and Reebok yeah. hashing it out. Yep. Did you feel intimidated in talking about how to price yourself for a design fee? How much are you buying the shoes for? How Absolutely. early do you get them? You're just freestyling. Well, yeah, I, again, I had no reference point, yeah. like, and I didn't have, I didn't know anybody at the time that had ever done anything like that mm -hmm. outside of professional athletes. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, I don't know what a design fee looks like. And so I was calling my friends and asking some of my friends that I think would know, but nobody really knew. Mm -hmm. So when they offered it to me, I was just like, okay, great. Like, when when they offered to you, were you like um, pleasantly surprised, pleasantly unpleasantly disappointed? Were well, you like that's about right? Yeah. Again, at that time, it was like I was just so excited to do it uh -huh. that I would have done it for nothing, mm -hmm, really. Mm -hmm, right. You know, for the exposure, for the exposure, yeah, yeah. for whatever. You know, I just would have done it just because I thought it was an incredible opportunity mm -hmm. for me. Um, but yeah, looking back, I really wish I had somebody helping me yeah but you learn as you go i along. learned yeah. yeah i learned a lot and how about the contract was you just read your own contract yeah you, you didn't show a lawyer no what? i mean i got advice from a couple people <laughs> uh -huh. i knew but none of the lawyers that i knew fashion is really specific mm -hmm. contractually yeah so like i knew like an immigration lawyer <laughs> my best friend is civil rights attorney so they kind of understood things so mm -hmm. i i got help but no when I see young creatives start getting called upon by bigger corporations, you always hear about people getting caught in a bad deal. The truth is, a bad deal happens when someone misses out on the finer details. It was pretty straightforward. I mean, there were certain things that I saw in there and I'd be like, I need you to take this out, and they would. And mm -hmm. Right. It was fine. And you but had your 
law-ish degree. Kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. I kind of understood what I was doing That's to cool. some extent. But what I didn't realize, which I, I wish I had earlier, was like, um, as I was doing all this stuff, I saw all these other designers, like um, Gosha Rubinsky is a mm-hmm. perfect example, where he had a shoe with Fila, Reebok, and Nike, mm-hmm. like all in the same year. Mm-hmm. Because however he had structured his contract, obviously, he didn't have like a non-compete. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I signed with Reebok, like I was deadlocked in with them. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't I couldn't explore any other opportunities, which really years. pissed me off. Yeah. Yeah. But you saw that and you just figured this must be something that this kind of makes sense. Like I should be exclusive to them. Well, yeah. I mean, I was, I was really dedicated to them just because of how much access they were giving me, Mm -hmm. which is also another thing that I learned through the process is like, um, you know, different brands have different things going on. Like if I were to go to Nike, I think they would probably be like, these are the two silhouettes that you could work on and this is your color palette. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Reebok basically was like, here's our entire archive. And <laughs> yeah. Carte blanche, here's whatever, yeah. our materials library. Right. Like, do you want to source? Do you want us to source anything for you? And I was like, what? That's okay. <laughs> like, yeah. can you do this? And they're like, yeah, we could do it. Like, I had a whole team there mm-hmm. that like, just did stuff for me, mm-hmm. which was, that's what really made me excited about yeah. about it. And that's why I sort of like made peace with it. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's talk about your store. Mm-hmm. So what year did the store open in LA? The store opened in 2012. Okay. So it's been there for five years yeah. now. Five years ago, if I can recall now, five years ago, e-commerce was a thing. Amazon was a thing. Um, the state of brick and mortar retail was probably already shaky mm-hmm. at best. Yeah. Um, why did you decide I'm going to open a, a freestanding store in LA? You know, I, it was like that voice in me that just kept pestering me about mm-hmm. it. And I didn't understand it because I hate retail. Like I grew up working in the mall. Like I've worked in the mall my entire life and I hate retail. <laughs> I hate it so much. I hate being in a retail store I just like don't like it, but there was something about it. Um, there's something about this stuff that I made that um, I felt like needed interaction, mm-hmm. and so I it just kept coming to me where I was like, Ugh, I think I have to look at this. So, how were people buying your stuff at online? This point? Just okay. online. So they couldn't go to your apartment anymore? No. <laughs> yeah. Those days were done. They were done. Okay. You did, did you have a showroom? No. So you had your home. Did you have an office? I had an office. Okay. So you yeah. had a home and an office, but people couldn't go there to just shop? No. Okay. So yeah, I just feel like there needed to be some kind of interaction. So I knew a lot of the guys on Fairfax, mm-hmm. like Nick from Diamond. Like we all clubbed together when we were whatever, younger. And um, so I knew them, and um, I was with actually I was with Frank Frank Ocean's a good friend of mine, and I was with him, and he took me down to the Odd Future store. Like he would just we you know everybody would hang out there all the time, and so he took me down there, and I remember being like, wow, like Fairfax has really changed, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, if I were to ever do something, I think I'd do it here, just because I liked the vibe around mm-hmm. it and I knew everybody there and I was like this feels right 
So a week later, we went down there again, and I saw a for rent sign on one of the stores, and I was like, huh, I wonder. And so I took down the number, and I called, and mind you, I didn't have credit at all. Like, I had put everything on a debit card because I didn't even... Like, nobody had taught me about that even. You didn't have a credit card. You I, had a debit card I only? I had a debit card. So I was putting everything on debit cards because I didn't want to spend more than I had. And I I saw that as noble. You know, yeah, like, like you didn't want debt. Right. right. I was like, this is great. Like, I'm doing great, you know? That you That is co- very commendable to me. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't know that you needed credit for the stuff like this. So... I remember talking to um, like my accountant at the time, and he was like, "Yeah, nobody's going to rent you anything because you don't have credit." And I was like, "Unless well, you pay like five years up front right. or something." <laughs> I was like, "I can't do that." So I, um, I was like, "Well, whatever. I'll just try it anyway." And then he was like, "Yeah, just submit the application, and then if they come back to it, then we can negotiate and see like what terms or whatever they want." So I did. I submitted an application. They got back, and they're like, "Okay, you're approved." And I was like, what? I was like, they didn't run my credit. They couldn't have. Yeah. Like, there's no way they could have. And then the process of it was so, like, it was, like, the most effortless process I've ever gone through in my life. To get the keys for your place. To get the keys to my place. And I was like, okay, I get it. Like, this is why the shit keeps coming to me. And I guess it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. This is just supposed to be something that I do. Yeah. So um, now, in, in case, and in case you don't, for the people who don't know, but yeah. you're on Fairfax, yeah, which is a very <clears throat> testosterone-driven boys' club, right? Yeah. It's Diamond, Hundreds, Supreme, right? Like Huff, Odd Future, yeah. And you're just—I'm going to open like a four female by female, yeah, like retail store. Yeah, that's what got me excited, though. Why not, like? Larchmont, La Brea, Melrose, where like the women shop. I just didn't connect with them. I mean, it's not somewhere I would hang out. Mm. And I just felt like, um, I don't know, there's very few. I'm, I was born and raised in L.A. And I feel like there's very few places that really like capture L.A. You know, and I felt like Fairfax, in a sense, was still very untouched in that way. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like Hollywood. Or mm-hmm. It wasn't It wasn't made to be anything it's not. It was right. still like, it was still very like true mm-hmm. to itself. I mean, now it's it's changed tremendously in the last five years. But even now still, like it, it still has that a certain quality thing. about yeah. it. Yeah. And so have you felt the the sort of hits and challenges that everyone talks about with retail? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, it's, um, I think the hardest part for me is having to, when you have a brand and then having to grow publicly, you know what I'm saying? Like in front of everyone. Exactly. Like making mistakes or like, and when I look at pictures in my store, when I first opened, like it looked like an art gallery, like Mm. there's nothing in there. Yeah, little pieces of jewelry. Right. It was like little things here. Like, it's kind of embarrassing, you Mm -hmm. know? Whereas now I feel like, even now it's still not where it needs to be, but now I feel like I've collected more of like what a brand identity would look like in Mm -hmm. person and how to execute that. And um, challenging-wise, there's so many things. I mean, like the toilet floods and all of a sudden you have all this 
like pro- product that's damaged in and, toilet water right yeah. and what do you do right these are things they don't or, teach you in college no <laughs> right it's not well or, what are the what are the pros of it then um i think for me the biggest pro has been i've really been able to so when i was working out of an office i was very isolated mm-hmm. And now that I have the store, I have an opportunity to really involve the community in doing different things that I really want to do. So um, an example is like Fairfax High School is down the street and there's all these girls that are on Fairfax all the time, but can't, you know, can't really hang out at a lot of these guys stores. So they come and hang out at our store, which yeah. is so great. Or they'll come in and like, talk to the shop girls about like what's going on and you know it's just so sweet to have like to create that sort of community it's like a clubhouse yeah Mm -hmm. and then um i get to host different things like uh we have a speaker series every month and you know i've i have the privilege of establishing all these incredible relationships with cool people and then I now have a place where I can be like, hey, can you come speak mm-hmm. and right. like talk about like kind of like what we're doing, mm-hmm. but um, do that. And then like it, it was actually so dope. A couple weeks ago, I had um, Lena Waith, who's the first black woman. She's on Master of None, but she was the first black woman to ever win an Emmy for comedy writing. And then my friend Melina, who directed the episode that she won the Emmy for and Michael Ely who's an act- actor, and they talked about um, women of color in Hollywood. All and, together at a talk. Yeah, they, we had a panel at the store, and we had a we received like 800 RSVPs, which is a lot for us. It was like unheard of. Because your store can fit how many people? 100. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we had a line with like 200 people down the, awesome. down the street, and the next day, everybody on Fairfax was like, yo, Mel, it's so dope. Like, what did you drop last night? <laughs> knowledge right that's what i said (laughs) that's dope so that was really cool i was probably like the highlight of my year where i was like this is what i really want to do like and that's what it was mostly girls like Mm -hmm. all girls you never see girls line up for anything but when it's this kind of stuff like Mm -hmm. i would line up for that like Mm -hmm. i would definitely stand in line for something like that and these are things that still can't happen on an instagram post right this has to happen in real life right yeah and it's just so special. Like, I really like creating, especially in the state of the world right now. Like, people, including myself, feel so helpless oftentimes. They're like, what do I do? Where do I go? And I, I'm fortunate enough where I have a community that I, you know, that, like, really supports me. But a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of my friends don't have like-minded people that they could, like, go to all the time or that they can hang out with. And so it's so cool to create a space for like-minded people and it's all based off fashion like who would have thought what melody has done here for the community and the culture is absolutely amazing there's no arguing that but now i wanted to get into the actual state of her business and quantify where she's at i have sort of like four major categories that to me when i see a successful business they're checking on all of four of these categories Mm -hmm. so i'm going to say them to you and you tell me like how you're doing in them. Okay. Okay. So to me, in a, in a business like ours, the first major category is creativity. Mm-hmm. And to me, I put design and marketing even into that whole bucket because mm-hmm. nowadays marketing is like 
a creative endeavor, really. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like you have that. That was the start of it. You have that in spades. Mm-hmm. Right? The other three are, to me, that are really important. I'll, I'll reel them off first is sales. Mm-hmm. So it's great to be able to make stuff. But to me, selling them is like the next challenge. Right? Yeah. It's not enough to just make it. Um, so selling, production, mm-hmm. the ability to scale the thing that you're making mm-hmm. and, and deliver it on quality and on time and on budget. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth thing to me is sort of like what I just call logistics and back end, mm-hmm. which is everything from the ability to like ship it on time, mm-hmm. not have stuff get stuck in customs, yeah. make sure that they are paying for the goods or if they want to return it, that it can be returned. Like just the moving of it is another issue. Yeah. So sales, production and logistics, how do you fare in those categories? How do you want me to answer that? Like in a percentage? Or- <laughs> uh, zero to 10, 10 being best. 10 being best. So sales. sales. Or let's start with creativity. Um, creativity isn't an issue for me. I right. feel like I always... You're pouring out. Yeah. yeah. It's just a, a matter of let's like... Let's call that an 11. Creating time. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my favorite part. If okay. I could just do that, mm-hmm. I would be the happiest person on the planet. Okay. So let's, let's go through the other ones. For sales, um, I think it's probably like a 6 or a 7. I think that I have like a solid customer base that is very supportive and that like buys our stuff. But it, trying to figure out how to scale that is the hard part. You know, it's like how do I find more of these people in other places of the world? Mm-hmm. And see how... If you can answer that question, it automatically now goes to the next question. Yeah. So let's say you found a million other people who want to buy your brand. Yeah. Now are you ready for production? production? Yeah, no. Okay. So, are you still laser cutting pieces out? Yeah. Get out of here. Yeah. You haven't moved. You still haven't gone back to China and Guangdong. Yeah. <laughs> Guangzhou or whatever. Well, I did expand to metals. So now uh-huh. we also do like, mold, we, you know, I work with brass a lot mm-hmm. and we make molds and then that kind of stuff is easy. But Locally in California? Yeah. Okay. So everything's in California. Everything's in California. Wow. Yeah. Made in the USA. Made in the awesome. USA. But yeah, I don't. I don't know what I would do. Well, it depends on what it is. Like with the acrylic stuff, it's all handmade and it's all like in, you know, it's all happening in house, but it's not hard. Like I would have to hire some more people to assist, but I could do it with the metals. It's easy. Um, but with the apparel, like I just started doing apparel in the last couple of years. That's a little bit of a challenge. Because it's there's so much that goes into it, like sourcing the material. So it's like, yeah, we found this incredible material, but we only found like 300 yards, mm-hmm. you know, which, which could probably make like 200 pieces. Mm-hmm. Like, what a. Yeah. So if we got an order for it, if we had more demand, like, we wouldn't know what to do. Uh-huh. Is, so, is all the apparel made in America too? Yeah. What made you want to go into apparel? Um, I kind of got bored with accessories. Mm-hmm. I was like, if I make another earring, I'm gonna shoot myself. Mm-hmm. You just so, wanted to expand your repertoire, yeah. basically. Yeah, and I, yeah. I mean, even now I'm like, I wanna make furniture so bad. Like, mm-hmm. every chandelier I see, I'm just like, I wanna make lighting. Mm-hmm. That's or, dope. So it's, yeah, it's just about like wanting to flex creatively in different ways. Yeah. Like, I don't want it to become a routine ever. Mm-hmm. So, rate production. 
I would say a five. Okay. Because you're good at what you do, but God forbid you get like yeah. a 10,000 piece order. You're just sort of I like, wouldn't know what to do. Right. Yeah. And then... And what people don't say... what The hardest part about production is timing. Because a lot of times I can get it done, but it's it'll take like six weeks or mm-hmm. eight weeks. And, and then the, the, the opportunity is The opportunity is gone. Yeah. And then logistics, which goes right hand in hand in that, right? So yeah. if you get an order for 10,000 pieces and now you got to house 10,000 bolts of yardage or material. Yeah. Like how is your logistics situation? Um, it's, yeah, it's, I would probably say it's like a six. Okay. It's one step above because, well, it's interesting because with the Reebok, with the Reeboks, it's kind of a prime example. So with the jewelry, we move like, you know, it's like a steady thing. Like we sell it all year round and it's like a steady thing. But with when we do the Reeboks, we're selling like 3,000 pairs overnight, usually, you know, or like throughout the course of a weekend. Yeah. And it's logistically, it's really challenging because we have to house 3,000 pairs of shoes, which is so different than jewelry. Like jewelry is like a little, Tiny you could put like yeah. a thousand pieces in like a box in the corner yeah. and you're fine. Whereas with shoes, like, we're living in the shoes for, like... <laughs> but you do it all out of your space? Yeah. Wow. And then it's, like, creating the labels, finding the packaging. Yeah, like different sized box, right? Everything. Yeah. So we're able to handle it with that kind of rush, but I would really be worried if, if that was consistent and anything more than that. But the clothing is around the same bulk bulkness right yeah what kind of clothing are you doing we're doing like simple like cut and sew like hoodies and Mm -hmm. sweats and tees and we'll do like the occasional dress or things like that um that's all being housed out of your store office too yeah do you have a warehouse we do we have a small a storage Mm -hmm. not even a warehouse Mm -hmm. it's like a storage unit yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah wow okay that's a that's an honest rating, I think. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, you mentioned you had fifteen people. Can you break down like their roles? Yeah, five of them work in the front of the house, and the, they're shop girls. And then I have um, an office manager, a production coordinator, um, a newly like in the last six months a business advisor who's kind of like positioned to be a. CEO potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I have uh, three people that work on jewelry production in house, and then I have um, two people that do content, like create ma- like our weekly mailers, take photographs, um, run the Instagram, and then um, customer service. I don't think you mentioned assistant designers. No. All you, all OCD. Yeah. You still design every jewelry piece, every apparel, every shoe. Everything, including packaging. I do everything. But that's why I need an investor. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, I have to admit, as an outsider, I have to say that's That's almost insanity. Well, again, it was (laughs) another one of those things that I didn't know. Like, I didn't know that that was. No, that was insane? No. (laughs) 
Do you not? Is I it, just is thought it that like that's trust what everybody like, did. Do you have issues where like you don't trust someone with your brand because has your name on it? Um, it it's a combination of that, but it's also like I didn't know that I could be Melody Asani and everything in this store wouldn't be Melody Asani. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you were to tell me like I thought like Mark Jacobs does everything. Like draws every single I thing. I thought yeah. every <laughs> single thing is his. Uh-huh. Like I didn't know that there's a team of designers that do that for gotcha. him. But now you understand. Now I understand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're and looking for the growth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now it's just about finding somebody that like gets it. Mm-hmm. Because it's I I've never I haven't met anybody that does. Yeah. But it took the ten years now so that when you do find that magical design director, creative director, they yes. they have the blueprint. Whereas totally. if you did it too early, it'd be their blueprint. Totally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I think people that really blows people away that like you're you're crafting this thing for 10 years just sort of off intuition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's a trip. You know, it kind of pisses me off that I didn't like I'm angry at myself that I didn't um, learn quicker or investigate more earlier Mm -hmm. because, yeah, I just feel like now I'm behind yeah, but something is sacrificed when you structure too early, too. Totally. Like, I think brand DNA, essence, spirit, these things yeah. are sort of squashed in a Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. Inevitably, right? Totally. Yeah. Well, but that's happening now, you know. <laughs> the Excel spreadsheets yes. are coming out. Yeah. So what, what are you doing now to strategically be a more structured business? Give us some examples of that. Um, well, I need investment, which is something super foreign to me because I've always, you know, I started, I literally started with nothing and built this whole thing by myself. And um, so it's really interesting trying to pitch that to people, you know, because it's like, I'm not a fucking like a hot dog stand. Like, it's not like I'm buying hot dogs and putting my logo on them. Like, I'm literally creating i've created every single thing from like the furniture in my store to the fixtures to the packaging to everything you know and um so it's kind of interesting trying to explain that to people who have money yeah and um yeah i i need support like i need senior level staffing and i need um to grow tech, like up until a year ago, I didn't even have Google Analytics mm-hmm. on my website, which is crazy. You know, I've never spent a dollar on marketing. You know, I met with one person and they're like, your PR person sucks. And I'm like, I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> that could explain why yeah, it sucks. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I've never had one. <laughs> um, so it's just really interesting yeah. like um, when somebody looks at your business from that standpoint and sort of picks it apart. Mm-hmm. In that way where I'm like, yeah, but I built this. Like, yeah. Well, it's it's almost a double-edged sword that you're at a point now where you're ready to share what you've created mm-hmm. with another person that hopefully you can trust a lot, right? Yeah. How does it feel for you now that, you know, if you, if you look back on the days of you getting a thousand shoes from China that you <laughs> lived there and brought over and are selling out of your apartment to now employing 15 people that sort of are reliant on you to pay rent, eat food. You're obviously sustaining yourself too. You have like this whole brand organization. Like when you think back to those days, 
Like, how does it make you feel now? Um, it's kind of surreal. It's weird because it's not what I, I... I think I just didn't think about it, like I said, because I was so excited about just making stuff that I didn't anticipate being in this position. And sometimes I still fight it. Like, I'm like, I don't want to be responsible for all these people. You know, like I really have days like that or where I'm like, oh, I wonder if I could just go somewhere and get a paycheck. <laughs> but, I mean, obviously, no, like I've chosen this and I really love it and enjoy it. And it's when I have those moments where I could sit back and look at it, it really feels like a blessing. Like, I don't think I would do anything else. I still haven't slowed down to the point where I can like sit back and really think about it that way. I still have so much more that I want to do and I still don't feel like I've gotten anywhere close to where I want to get to. So it's weird to, I don't think about it that way yet. Yeah. You're 10 years in on, and on day one, basically. Yeah, right? exactly. Do you have anything else you feel like you want to add to this? No, I think you asked me everything. <laughs> I got it all. Are you bored? No, I'm not. I'm fascinated by this stuff. That's why I wanted to do this show. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the episode. You can find out more about the show or listen to past episodes at hypebeats.com slash radio. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. I use Overcast. And you can reach out to me on Twitter at Jeff Staple. You can check us out on the web at businessofhype.com and you can email any questions to questions at businessofhype.com. The Business of Hype is directed by Daniel Novetta, edited and produced by Bright Young Things. You can check them out at byt.nyc. This was recorded at Sibling Rivalry Studio in New York City and on location at Seoul DXB in Dubai. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hype Beast Radio.